If you'll join me in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. And this morning we will be looking at verses 5 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 6. The title of our sermon is Master and Slave. And our key words for our worshipers in training are Submit, Authority, and Work. I wonder who the greatest leader is that you have ever known. And I'm not just talking about some great world leader or military leader, uh, political or, or business leader, but in your own life, in your own experience, who's the greatest leader that you've ever worked with? I want you to think about that person. Have you ever had a job that you thought was amazing because of who you worked for? And if you did, what, what made that boss, what made that leader what they were? What were the qualities that they possessed that made following them not only easy, but enjoyable? The ancient philosopher Plato, in his seminal work, The Republic, described a man that he called the philosopher king. And Plato believed that the philosopher was the best kind of person, one who could think and reason and articulate their ideas with astounding insight and precision. And so in Plato's mind, this was the kind of person that should be the king of a society, the leaders in the marketplaces and the political institutions. But the problem was twofold. First was that In order for a philosopher king to be effective, they must first enter back into the proverbial cave from which they've already escaped so that they can persuade all the people who are still there that they are constrained by their own devices, only seeing shadows of reality. The second problem is a necessary combination of qualities is extremely rare. Philosophers rarely want to be kings. And so while Plato thought that this philosopher king was a possibility, he also knew very few would ever realize the right values in order to be that person. And in our post-Genesis 3 world, we have a well-planned enemy, and there is little difference between man and man when we are without Christ. But we as Christians should have a profound difference about us when we interact with other men and other women, and particularly those who are subject to us, or those we have authority over, or those we are in subjection to. If you are a leader, how do you make decisions? In your vocation, as you're maybe under the authority of someone else, how do you follow their lead? Or if you are a leader, are you seeking to be like the greatest philosopher king, in Plato's words, who was Jesus, who is the perfect manifestation of all of the true biblical virtues? As though, uh, as being one who, although having power and authority, knows that the greatest leader isn't one who is seeking to be served, but one who serves. Now, whether your vocation puts you behind a desk or standing in a pulpit or at a checkout stand or changing diapers and chasing toddlers day by day, we all find ourselves in positions of authority and leadership, and we all find ourselves in positions of service and submission. 
So what do we do with our callings? The world doesn't need more doctors and lawyers. The world needs more doctors and lawyers and service workers and stay-at-home moms and missionaries and engineers and public servants and business owners and plumbers and teachers who can think biblically, who can act in humility, who can work morally and heartily and understand that every day matters no matter what our circumstances are because each second of our lives is a gift to be lived to the glory of God. And there's a way to do each of these things that looks very different from the way that the world does them, because as Christians, we are called to be filled with the Spirit in all that we do, no matter where we land on the spectrum. So whether you're a leader or someone's boss, or if you work for someone else and you're at the very bottom of the totem pole, God's word from Ephesians 6 this morning is for you. It's for all of us because we all land somewhere on that spectrum and in different areas of life we may have different roles that we play. And as we come to verses 5 through 9 this morning, it's important to remember that that Paul is really continuing to explain what he started back in the middle of chapter 5. You'll recall in chapter 5 and verse 18, he shifted directions a little bit in all that he was writing to the Ephesian churches. And he said that Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to explain exactly what he means by that. He gives several quick exhortations. And then he writes in verse 21 that being filled with the Spirit means that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then on, uh, from verse 22 up until the end of the text that we're going to be dealing with this morning, he's giving examples of what that looks like. He gives three different examples. He's followed the same pattern in dealing with each of these kinds of relationships. He begins with dealing with the one who is under authority and explaining to them Uh, what their responsibilities are, and then he addresses the one who holds authority and how they should hold that. So the first relationship that he dealt with was was marriage, and he addresses wives, and then he talks uh, to the husbands. The second was uh, the relationship between children and their parents, and this morning he deals with the relationship between masters and slaves. Now, Obviously, just by my saying that, you realize this comes with some thorny issues that we're going to have to deal with this morning. But it's important, if we're going to deal with those, to remember where he started. He started in verse 21 with our submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that is the banner verse for everything that follows because it means that before we can start thinking about our role as a husband or as a mother or as an employer, we have to first come to the place of considering others more highly than ourselves in every circumstance of life. I cannot lead like the great philosopher King Jesus if I'm not first coming to a place of wanting to serve rather than to be served. And I can't follow with the right heart others and a desire to do what's best for my company or my family or my church if I don't first start with the mentality of not wanting what's best for myself, but of wanting what's best for others. Dying to ourselves and living to the advantage of others is the perpetual drumbeat of the Bible. And it's the heart, it's at the heart of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Or else Paul wouldn't spend so much time detailing each of these kinds of relationships that really make up 
the three most prominent relationships that we have in all of our lives. In our marriages, in our homes, as parents and children, and in our workplaces. To be filled with the Spirit is to have the gospel at the center of our lives, and it creates tremendous joy and awe in our hearts as we consider who God is and what God has done. And the effects of that are our realizing what we have been given in Christ. And in turn, we begin to see ourselves not as authoritarian kings and queens who always demand what we want, but as servant-hearted children of God who can give ourselves to others that they might know something of the mercy and the grace and the love that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. The gospel erodes all of our natural inclinations of self-centeredness. The gospel makes it possible for us to obey out of gospel-hearted desires instead of a legal obligation. So let's look how this plays out in this third relationship that Paul identifies. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The first point for us to see this morning is that when we are called to serve, we are to do so with a sincere heart unto the Lord. Now, the big thorny question here is if this passage is supporting the practice of slavery. The ESV translates the Greek word here as bondservants, but literally the word is slaves. And I want to answer this before we get to what the, the heart of what Paul is saying is, because there are two main ways in which passages like this from the Bible have been misunderstood to get in the way. The first way the, po- the passage has been misunderstood is to interpret Paul's words as condoning slavery as a practice and uh, as an institution saying, yes, slavery is fine. And it's not hard to go back in church history and find sermons and theological treatises by otherwise faithful pastors and ministry leaders who would look at passages like this in the Bible and assume having and trading slaves was acceptable in the eyes of God. Because right here we have instructions on how slaves and masters ought to function, so it must be acceptable, right? Well, on the other hand, there are people who would look at a passage like this and they would say, Uh, as those who are not Christians, see, I could never be a Christian. I could never accept the teaching of the Bible because it condones slavery. The Bible may have a lot of good things to say here and there, but it's primitive. It's not progressive. It supports things we know are wrong. So we we shouldn't believe what it says on the whole. We We can take out the things that we think are good and use those and leave the rest. Well, that doesn't work either. And not to mention there lack of logic in that they're having to argue for that without any foundation of morality apart from Scripture itself. 
But we set that aside and address the fact that their whole premise is wrong entirely. Now, let's begin with the simple reality that we arrive at from Scripture. Slavery, as nearly all of us understand it, is wrong. And you don't see that in this passage because it's not Paul's point to address that reality. But if you have any questions about that, I just... I just want to say that what the Bible teaches about the dignity and worth of every human life and how we are to treat one another is an emphatic denial of the institution of slavery at any time in any context throughout the history of the world. Slavery is not something unique to the foundation of America. But as we see very clearly here in the Bible, it's been a staple of almost every society throughout history, and it still exists in many parts of the world today. And Paul writes to the Ephesians about it specifically because nearly every single household that was represented in the churches would have been affected by slavery, either as a master or as a slave, or in some instances, both. And I'll explain that. Now, it's estimated that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and major cities like Ephesus would have had about a third of their population classified as slaves. So there would have been slaves in the church, and there would have been also masters. So why doesn't Paul tell the masters, hey, stop enslaving people, it's wrong. But instead, he gives them directions on how to conduct themselves as masters. Well, we'll get to the heart of that in a bit, but... Much of the slavery that existed in Paul's day and would have existed in Ephesus was very different than what we think of because of American history. In the city of Ephesus, there would have been people who actually sold themselves into slavery because they wanted to obtain Roman citizenship. They were allowed to own property. They were often paid some kind of wage, and many of them even owned their own slaves. So the context just isn't the same as what many of us think of. And that sort of squashes a lot of arguments that are given for how uh, the Bible might support slavery. It doesn't. But this is also very important because it works itself out in a lot of areas we need to be thoughtful of as we, as we look at the Bible. God, in His infinite wisdom, inspired the Bible to be written in such a way that when it comes to these kinds of social issues... We don't have these sort of pat answers that just give us a list of how everything needs to be handled. Why? Because there are always going to be issues that come up that need to be answered using biblical principles and not just yeses and nos. And it's brilliant because now as new things arise that the Bible doesn't address directly, we don't have to say, well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But instead we can say, let's look at the biblical principles that inform us on the issue. And this is one of them. So can I point to you, uh, point a verse out to you that says straightforwardly that this type of slavery is wrong? No. But can I show you biblical principles that show you that that these types of slavery are wrong? Absolutely. I can show you principles from Scripture. And it's because of this that Christians in the West are the ones who eventually brought an end to the institution of slavery. It wasn't some noble philanthropist. It wasn't a president. It wasn't a government, it was Christians who rose up and said every man, woman, and child is born in the image of God and they are important to God and they ought to be important to us. 
and Christians led the charge to bring an end to it. But here's what we really get into, what Paul is addressing, and that is his greatest concern in writing to anyone is never about how to change their current circumstances and make their circumstances more just or palatable to the people within the circumstances. No, Paul's concern is, hey, first, before we ever get to that, we need to deal with your relationship with the Lord first. So the first thing Paul says to the slaves isn't, hey, let's talk about whether or not it's right for you to leave all of this behind and get your freedom and start an abolitionist movement. Instead, what does Paul say? He says, hey, when tomorrow comes and you wake up and you're still a slave, how are you going to live in the midst of your circumstances as one who is filled with the Spirit of God? And if you're filled with the Spirit, how is that going to affect the way that you respond to your master? So you see, Paul's dealing with the immediate circumstances. He's dealing practically with what the people, with the people that he's writing to and what they're dealing with that's right in front of them. He's not writing about what could come or what could be. He's saying, what are your circumstances now and how do you live faithfully in the midst of them? So with that said, what's going on here? Well, Paul's telling them, look, you're slaves. You have masters. So here's how you need to work that out. And there's an immediate application for all of us here. Now, you can laugh about your boss treating you as a slave, or you can laugh and say what you do makes you miserable, or you're overworked and underpaid, and you don't have any independence or whatever. But your situation is not like a slave. So I actually believe what Paul is writing here applies to us in far greater measure than it did even to slaves because our conditions are much easier to work within. Paul says to us, Obey those you work for and respect them and do so out of a sincere heart just as though you are working for Christ Himself. Doing God's will from a right heart doing good and right service, knowing that whatever you do is according to God's will and it's going to be returned in blessings from the Lord no matter your current circumstances. And this is an exhortation all of us need to hear, right? Paul is crushing our two main temptations when it comes to our work. The first is the temptation to look at work as an evil necessity, and I just do what I do in order that I have the means to live out a life of luxury and leisure. So I go to work and I do my job so that I can have money in order to do whatever I want that I think is fun. In other words, work is a means to an end, and and that end is a paycheck, And that is work's only purpose. The other temptation is to look at work as the meaning in life. Work is my purpose in life, and everything I do is built around my work. So one temptation is to say, I work for leisure, and the other is to say, I work for meaning and identity. But neither one of these is right. And Paul comes in here and says, you work as a means, not to a paycheck, but you work as a means to bring glory to God and to serve to do something meaningful for the sake of the kingdom of God. So your primary reason for working is not to have money so you can buy a boat and a four-wheeler and a new hunting rifle, 
but because you're storing up treasures in heaven, that by them you will be blessed by the God you serve. Now, whenever I say something like that, I hear a little voice in my head that says, someone's going to say, does that mean I can't have a boat or a four-wheeler or a hunting rifle? No. Go for it. However, what is the primary purpose? That's what we need to have in mind. Why am I working? Is it to have these things? Because if it is, then those things probably have me. What controls what? Now, why did God create work? Remember, work itself is not a curse. It may feel like it, depending on what your work is, because God gave work in the garden. But remember, the curse was that our work would be difficult. Our work would come with blood, sweat, and tears. But work itself was a blessing from the very beginning. And in the new heavens and the new earth, I actually believe in the new earth, we will continue to work, but it will be in a glorified manner. And we will delight in it. Now, how do we need to go about our work then? Paul says first that we do so respectively. In verse 5, he says that we are to obey our masters, we are to obey our leaders with fear and trembling, with respect. This isn't about being scared to death, that you're going to be fired if you don't do what you're told. This is actually the same language that the Bible uses to describe our approach to God with reverence, with respect. And in the case of our boss, it is with the understanding of their position of authority in our lives. This is really important if we're walking in the Spirit because you may have a boss that is nothing at all like the virtuous philosopher king that I described earlier. You may actually think your boss is incompetent and rather useless. And you may think, I can do his or her job ten times better than they do it, and the only reason they have their job is because they're friends with their boss. Be honest. Evaluate your own hearts here as you consider your boss. This is why Paul advises Timothy to instruct believing slaves that all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So evidently, there were some disrespectful Christian slaves, and they had tarnished the gospel's cause among non-Christian masters. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy, and he explains in verse 2 of chapter 6, those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, They are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. In other words, no matter who our boss is and how they treat us, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, we cannot be irreverent and disrespectful toward them. We owe them respect. We owe them honor because theirs is a place of authority and that authority has been given to them by God over us no matter what we might think of them personally. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Now, Paul also writes in verse 5 that slaves are to obey their earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Literally, this means with a, a singleness of heart. 
The big picture is that we are to serve with an undivided mind so that there is no hypocrisy, there is no ulterior motive. In other words, I'm not pretending to do my work while simultaneously behind the scenes I'm trying to undermine my boss or sabotage my company. Paul is actually making the point that we, we serve Christ as we serve those who are over us. And, and they, this should absolutely transform our motivations as we do our jobs. Listen, if you're not the kind of employee that a boss looks at you and says, I wish I had ten just like them then you need to check your motives and your work. Because if Jesus was your earthly boss, you wouldn't work half-heartedly, you wouldn't work in an unmotivated and begrudging way. And Paul's saying, look, consider all that you are called to do on your job as though you were doing it for Jesus. Because you are. And that doesn't just go for employees in an office or on a job site. This is the great need for all of us in whatever vocation we are in. Listen to this quote from John Stott. He writes this, It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. That is the call on the life of the Christian, as Paul is putting it to us here. There's an old parable about three workmen who were approached by a visitor, and when they were asked about the work they were doing, the first said, I am chipping these stones. The second one said, I am earning my wage. And the third one said, I am building a great cathedral. Now, what about you? Do you have a singleness of mind about your work that you see what you're doing is building a great cathedral or Are you so disgusted by your work and it's only a means to an end so you're earning your wage or you're just chipping away at stones? Elizabeth Elliot says, A clam glorifies God better than you because a clam is doing exactly what it was built to do. It is using its capacities. It is glorifying God by being a clam. It's perfectly everything God meant it to be. Are you being everything that you were meant to be? And do you display that in your work? Are you using your gifts and your capacities in that way for Him? Now look at verse 6. Here Paul is exhorting the worker to do what they're supposed to do no matter who is watching because ultimately their obligation is to honor God and not man. When I was going through all the various schools that I had to go through in the army, there were always times when the students were made to do push-ups or flutter kicks, and as long as the instructor was watching, everyone was doing exactly what they were supposed to do. But as soon as they turned their back, everyone took a break, they sunk down to the ground, and they rested so they could get their breath for the next time that they were being watched. Is that how you do your job? Did you know that there are computer programs, and maybe I shouldn't tell you this, that are designed for you to be able to do whatever you want on your computer, and you click an icon on your screen, and a spreadsheet pops up, and whatever you are doing closes down so that your boss can't see what was on your screen? 
That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. That's giving eye service. That's, that's just being a people pleaser. Maybe you think you have a dead-end, meaningless, nothing job, but you're still called to work energetically all the time, no matter who's watching, no matter who's around. When everyone else around you gets tense because the president of the company is going to show up, you should be able to just keep doing what you're doing because you're doing the right thing. And this applies to students who work part-time summer jobs and moms who stay home with their kids and care for their household and to long-term employees of Fortune 500 companies. It applies to all of us and whatever God calls us to. Now Paul goes on in verses 7 and 8 to instruct the bondservant to do their task with good will. Here's the basic premise. Is there a pleasantness to what you're doing and how you're conducting yourself? Are others motivated to do their work well because you're around them? Or do they try to avoid you at all costs because you're always grumbling and complaining and miserable and talking about how terrible your job is? Sometimes you'll call a business usually seems to be government employees or a restaurant or you go to a store where it seems that everyone has a terrible attitude and they don't want anything to do with you. They're mad that you're placing an order. You're asking them to do their job. Is that you? Is that the kind of employee you are? If so, Paul's warning you that this isn't pleasing to the Lord. It reduces whatever eternal benefits might be yours as a result of your cheerful, faithful working on to the Lord and honoring Him as your master. Now, I don't know how it all works out, but Paul seems to say here that there's a reward coming to those who serve God by serving others. At the very least, this is a big very least, is heaven in all of its glory. The Spirit-filled first-century slaves knew this, and they held it close to their hearts. And the 21st century believers who hold it with similar wisdom will know the same pleasantness. I do what I do. I work how I work because I know my reward is not ultimately a paycheck or a pension. My reward is heaven and all the glory that comes along with it. How do your lives shape up to such a statement? Well, Paul goes on and his instruction to deal with those in power, those who hold authority. We see in our final point this morning in verse 9. When called to lead, do so with humility and love, showing dignity to those who serve you. Now, as far as the people of Ephesus were concerned, Paul's exhortation for the slaves was not all that great of a cause for a lot of problems. In fact, they were very happy that Paul would be saying such a thing to their slaves. It might make life easier for them. So whether they were doing what Paul was instructing was one thing, but the instructions themselves were not all that radical. On the other hand, what Paul now writes concerning masters is completely contrary to the norm. The gospel priority of Paul shines through very brightly here. The question he's answering is, if you're a master, how ought you to treat your slaves? And the answer, in a Christ-like manner. But let's apply it to our circumstances. If you're a leader, if you're a coach, a boss, a parent, if you're in any kind of role where there are people who are responsible to submit to you in some way, how do you treat them? 
Is it in a Christ-like manner? And for Paul to write this in his day just completely turns everything upside down. And we can see this because he writes specifically to them, stop your threatening. In other words, this that's going on, it needs to stop in the way that it's going on. Now, this is a far cry from the kind of slavery most of us think of, isn't it? We think of slavery in terms of a master considering a slave his property and being able to do whatever he wants to them. But Paul is saying, no, treat them well. Treat them with respect. Treat them with dignity. But for those critics of the Bible who think it condones slavery, what does this do? If I'm a Christian master and I have a slave and now all of a sudden I'm treating them in a Christ-like manner... And if you look at the rest of Paul's instructions in verse 9, I see them not just as a slave, but if they're a Christian, I see them as my brother or sister in Christ. I see them as one who has the same father. I see them as a fellow human being to whom God shows no partiality. So what happens all of a sudden to my view of this relationship? Well, I might still be in charge of them, But I'm not treating them in a way that's demeaning and evil and degrading and harsh. I'm treating them with love and respect and honor and humility. That sounds a whole lot like this person isn't really functioning anymore as a slave in the way that we think of slavery, but maybe as an employee. And in fact, if that's how we're treating this person, it's going to be an employee who really loves their job and respects their boss, right? So it's apparent in the households where Paul, where his instruction for masters and slaves was followed, that the bonds of slavery were actually broken completely by the freedom of Christ that would reign. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does, isn't it? Once in bondage, enslaved, and in our case, enslaved to sin. But because of the transforming work that Christ does to treat us, not as slaves, but as those whom he loves and has died for, is no longer the harsh penalties of the unbending law, but is now the long-suffering, undeserved grace that is applied to us. So, brothers and sisters, if slaves and masters were obligated to demonstrate Christ to each other in a context of such great inequity, then how much more should we be willing to represent him in our work contexts? If our employer is unfair, that no more excuses us from acting with integrity than a slave was excused from acting with Christ-likeness in a society that allowed him to be enslaved in the first place. If you're a boss, if you're a leader, if an employee is difficult... You are to be representing Jesus, so you, have no, you don't have the same options for retribution that others might think they have as a master. Don't be harsh. Listen to Paul here. Stop your threatening. You may be somebody in the eyes of your company. You may be somebody in the eyes of the world, but God shows no partiality. And so you may be the most powerful businessman in the world, but... In the eyes of God, you are no greater than the person who's making copies in the copy room. Your employees are your fellow image bearers, and if they are Christians, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So even when difficult economic and employment decisions have to be made, all who represent Christ to one another have to act with truthfulness and integrity and charity. In other words, we have to act as though we are walking in the footsteps of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the call of all of this, from wives to submitting to husbands, husbands loving and giving themselves to their wives, children obeying their parents, fathers not provoking their children to anger, and loving and serving them and teaching and, and, and disciplining them in the Lord from slaves submitting to and obeying their masters and masters not being harsh and unloving toward their slaves. All of this is only possible when we set our eyes on Jesus. Because all of this only happens when we come to the very end of ourselves and empty ourselves of pride and self-righteousness and a sense of entitlement, and we set our lives on being like Christ, dying to ourselves that we might live to the advantage of others, not seeking to always be served, but to serve. So no matter what our calling is in life, no matter what our circumstances are, we can say, I know that what I'm doing and how I'm doing it brings glory to God. Can you say that about your work and how you go about your work? Can you say that about how you lead others? One of my favorite people in the history of the world is a man named Eric Little. He's an Olympic runner. He was the focus of the movie Chariots of Fire. And he became famous because as the favorite to win the gold medal... In the Olympics, he refused to run on the Lord's Day because he knew he needed to honor the Sabbath. And instead of going to run his heat for the qualifying round, he was in church on Sunday. (laughs) Later on, he was called to be a missionary, and he went to China and served the Lord faithfully in China. There's a great scene in the movie Chariots of Fire where his sister is scared, and he's comforting her. She's scared about what's to come as he goes to China. And here's what he says to her. He says, I know God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Brothers and sisters, have you felt the pleasure of God as you run for him in your calling? Are you running and doing whatever you do, whatever you're called to do in your vocation in life to feel the pleasure of God? May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word provides us with all that is necessary that we can have lives that bring glory to you, that we can live according to your word because the Spirit dwells within us, that we can live in such a way that the world looks at us as a strange and peculiar people who live and work and serve in a very different manner than what they see from others. Because Christ has redeemed us. Christ has set us free. And so as we go about whatever we're called to do day by day, in our places of work, in our homes, in our retirements, whatever we are doing, whatever we've been called to do, I pray, God, that our end would not be for small things. Our great desire in the end would not simply be to complete a task for a pat on the back or to receive a paycheck. 
but that we would do all that we do that we might know the pleasure of our God. And so I pray, Father, for those who work for others that we submit out of reverence and with honor and with integrity. For those who lead, that we do so with all the virtues of those who are called to be like Christ, seeking not to be served, but to serve. And I pray all of us will apply your word in our lives and that we would be a faithful body of Christ, living and serving to make much of Jesus in whatever we set our hands to. And so we pray, God, you would do all of these things for your great glory, that we might receive the reward that awaits us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen.